All right, so we are going to be uh, in Acts today. We're not swerving off of Acts, and the way God works is amazing. Uh, we're going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart and has everything to do with what we're celebrating today on our six-year birthday for Wayside. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. You can grab a sermon handout and a Bible on the resource table if you'd like, uh, if you want to fill in some blanks. And uh, we're going to be in, in uh, the latter half of Acts 20. We'll be in uh, verses 13 to 38. So Acts 20, 13 to 38, if you want to pull that up on your phone. And uh, I, I, want, I always try and help us get a better context with a long narrative sequence like the book of Acts. It's historical. Luke is a master historian. But sometimes you get lost. Sometimes you, you, you're focused on a tree and you lose sight of the forest. And so just to kind of give you guys an idea of where we are and what we're looking at today, uh, when the book of Acts transitions over to the ministry of Paul from Peter, uh, we see that in chapter 13 and on, and there are three missionary journeys of Paul. And then there's a journey back to Jerusalem. He gets arrested and he ends up appealing to Caesar and going to Rome. And we leave him in Rome under house arrest at the end of the book of Acts. So where we are in that grand narrative is we are on the tail end of his third missionary journey as he's heading back to Jerusalem to deliver all the donations that he's received from the Gentile churches to go to the, the uh, impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and he's trying to get there by Pentecost so he can deliver the gift on Pentecost, it seems. And so in each one of his missionary journeys, there is one major speech. And just Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke, the inspired author, is just amazing in how he structures Acts. But in the first missionary journey, you have one speech. It's in Pisidian Antioch, and it's primarily to Jews in the Jewish synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch also God fears. In his second missionary journey, you have a second major speech, which is not to Jews in a synagogue, but to Gentile philosophers on Mars Hill. And so you get to see how he shares the gospel with, with unbelieving Gentiles in Athens. And then in his third missionary journey, what we're going to look at today, he's not talking to unbelieving Jewish people or God fears or unbelieving Gentiles. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. He's specifically talking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And so all three of these show a glimpse of Paul's apostolic ministry. And so we're going to be looking at that third speech today, uh, again, delivered to a group of Christian leaders. And I have to say that as a church pastor, today's passage challenges me. I was sharing this with Stacy yesterday morning while we were just sipping some coffee on the porch. And I, certain passages just rattle my cage and they make me think deeply about life and ministry and church and and my role in particular as a church pastor, and this is one of those passages for me, it, it specifically, it makes me consider my own role and responsibilities as a church leader and how I can become the absolute most effective shepherd, elder, pastor, preacher, teacher that I can possibly be. How can I become the best I can possibly be? At the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, if anything's going to be done in the name of Jesus that has any power behind it, it's going to be done through the Holy Spirit, but he works through us. And so how can I become, how can the rest of the elders of our church become the most effective we can possibly be at shepherding the flock that God has entrusted to us here at Wayside? And Paul's speech isn't just for church leaders. So please don't hear that he's talking to elders and go, oh, okay, I'm off the hook. He's not talking to me. This speech, this part of Acts, it's intended for all of us. 
Uh, and, and I'm going to lay out these eight marks of effective leadership quickly. He, he hits a lot of aspects of leadership. So I'm just going to go through them quickly today in the sermon. But it's, it's, it's eight marks of an effective leader. But folks, if you're a member of Wayside, even if you become a member today by signing a commitment form and stacking your stone with us, if you're a member of this church, I want you to be a leader. That's the goal. I was talking to somebody the other day, and it's like there's not like two options. It's not like, well, I could just sort of skate by as sort of a, a, a lay person or something like this. And then there's people that are really called to gospel ministry and growing in their faith and leading others. Folks, we're all called to grow and mature in that sense. And so that's why this, this passage should resonate for all of us, not people with official roles in the church. Uh, and, and even if you don't have an official leadership role, if your membership in a local church, even if it's not this local church, if your membership is marked by these eight aspects that we're going to talk about today, then I promise you that the Holy Spirit will work through you to bless your church family and to bring glory to God and honor Jesus Christ. And so I hope that'll uh, help you to perk up and realize this isn't just for leaders. So here's the big idea today. An effective church leader is these things, purposeful, humble, bold, vigilant, faithful, selfless, prayerful, and personal. So let's see how each of these is featured in today's passage. An effective church leader is purposeful. I want you to look with me at verses 13 to 17. Uh, This section details the journey from Troas. Uh, We talked about this last week, um, but, but they found a ship there, and they're traveling down the coastline of Asia Minor. And so this, this details the journey in these first couple verses of our passage where they go from Troas down to uh, Miletus, Miletus uh, which is close to Ephesus. And that's where Paul summons the elders of the Ephesian church. It's about a day's journey from, uh, uh, to that city from Ephesus, a day there and a day back. So he's there for a couple days, it seems, as he calls the elders to himself. And I want, I want to make the point here about Paul's purposefulness. Paul's purpose is really clear in this section of our passage. He wants to get back to Jerusalem by the festival of Pentecost. Remember, that's how this whole thing kicked off at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He wants to get back there for that annual celebration of Pentecost, which is a Jewish celebration. And uh, and he wants, and he seemingly, if you track with his letters, he wants to make that the occasion of presenting this collection of donations that he's received from all these primarily Gentile churches for the primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem because they had hit, been hit with drought and famine. There was poverty. Uh, they didn't have enough food. And so Paul was, was, was pulling together this collection and he wanted to present it by Pentecost. He wanted to be back for that festival. And that's why Paul doesn't spend time in Ephesus. You remember at the beginning of his third missionary journey, he spent almost three years in Ephesus. So he's been there a long time, developing relationships, developing leaders, developing the church, leading people to Christ. He wants to come by and speak his peace, say his farewells, because he knows he probably won't ever see these people again. So he calls them down to the coastline, and that's the setting here, and that's what's in the first couple verses. Um, He wants to provide some final encouragement for these elders that he had been developing over these years. And I think some of these elders he's talking to might have been the 12 guys that he stumbled upon when he first walked into Ephesus uh, years before. You remember the 12 guys like, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. We were just baptized into John's baptism. And he's like, he tells them, like, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. And then they get baptized in the name of Christ. 
And I wonder, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they prophesied, spoke in tongues. And I wonder if some of those men didn't end up being these elders that he's talking to years later now. Um, But anyway, the idea is that Paul was an effective church leader in part because he was purposeful in what he did. An effective church leader is also humble. Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul begins this address to the Ephesian elders by describing his Ephesian ministry, all those years that he was there, and he describes it as serving the Lord with all humility. He was serving the Lord Jesus while he was there serving the Ephesian church. And as we've already seen earlier in Acts, Paul was facing incredibly humbling, sometimes humiliating circumstances as he constantly had to contend with the plots of unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, his fellow Jews that wanted to run him out of town, that weren't believing in Jesus as their Messiah, and also the, uh, the silversmiths guild and all the people we talked about before that wanted to run him out of, t- out of town because he was changing the culture with the gospel. And so he's got these constant tears and trials, he calls them, brought on by these unbelievers during his time in Ephesus. But folks, Paul suffered well. Paul is a model for suffering well, and he served the Lord how? Not by going off in in personal devotionals, right? There's nothing wrong with going out by yourself in the woods, but he was serving the Lord. He was worshiping the Lord through his relationships and through his interactions with actual people. So he's serving the Lord as he's serving the Ephesians with humility and grace. So Paul was an effective church leader because he was purposeful, but also because he was a humble-hearted man, and he recognized his humility before the one true God. An effective church leader is also bold. Guys, I've, I've had conversations with people both inside and outside the church before about this strange um, paradox, I guess is the word you would use for it, of humble boldness or bold confidence with humility. Like, I I just don't see that in our world much, you know? People either think if you're going to be bold, you've got to be cocky and brazen and whatnot. Uh, but, but the way Jesus models what life ought to look like, when we become Christ-like, folks, at the very same time, we become both humble and bold. In fact, it's because of our humility before God, as we get down on our faces, on our hands and knees, before the one true God, our Heavenly Father, and recognize that he is our creator and that we are his creatures. It's through that relationship with God and that humility that the Holy Spirit can then work through us to be bold and confident in Christ. And so an effective church leader isn't just humble, they're also bold, and those things are inextricably tied together. Look at verses 20 through 27. In particular, I want to point out that these verses are about boldness in speech. And that is often the context in which Paul is talking about boldness. He's talking about boldness uh, in the way that we open our mouth and, and speak what is true and speak on behalf of our Lord Jesus, on behalf of God as his representatives, as his ambassadors. So twice, in the context of just these verses we're looking at right here, twice Paul states what? That he did not shrink back. He did not retreat in fear from saying what needed to be said. He didn't shrink back from declaring God's truth to the Ephesians. I love that. Did not shrink back. But his boldness was evident in his relationships both inside and outside the church. And you see it on both sides. He's not just 
bold with his words to fellow Christians in the church, he's also bold out in the marketplace or in the synagogue or on Mars Hill or in the lecture hall of Tyrannus or on and on and on, on a ship, you know, chained to a Roman guard. Paul is bold in his speech, both inside and outside the church. And I think sometimes we can tend to be one or the other. Uh, we need to be both. And, uh, and that's how Paul was. So Paul was bold in speaking to Christians inside the church. Let's look at that. In verse 20, Paul describes this ministry to folks in the church as declaring anything that was beneficial or profitable. Now, he's not talking about like, here's a great recipe for pot roast, right? He's talking about this is God's truth. This is both from the Old Testament and from the scriptures as they're being put together that would become the New Testament, including his own letters, and, and, and the word from prophets in the church and the apostolic teachings from Jesus Christ. He's sharing these things. He's declaring these things because they're profitable so that they can make people wise and lead people to grow in righteousness and holiness in Christ. And so he declares what is profitable to fellow Christians. And it also says he's teaching both publicly and from house to house. And we've already seen him do it publicly in Ephesus. Remember, he was in the synagogue teaching publicly from the Hebrew Scriptures until he got booted out. And then he went to uh, a a Gentile, a Greek uh, lecture hall and spent the rest of his time there speaking out boldly in public. But it also says from house to house. So he's going around to these different groups of Christians in Ephesus, maybe house churches in Ephesus, like the one that met in Priscilla and Aquila's home. And he's teaching. He's teaching them from Scripture, from God. All right. So in verses 26 and 27, Paul states that he bears no guilt. This is blood guilt. I'll explain that. He bears no guilt for anyone's judgment because why? Why can he have a clear conscience as he leaves these Ephesian elders in this Ephesian church? He has a clear conscience because he's declared what needed to be declared about all things profitable, all things important from the scriptures. Now those people have to decide what they're going to do with it. If they're unbelievers, they have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus and his claims. But they're not going to not trust in Jesus because Paul failed to share Jesus because he shrank back in fear. The people in the church. God, Jesus is not going to, you know, at the Bema seat judgment, which is where we stand before the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians, he's not going to look at somebody wasting their whole life as a believer and go, man, this was Paul's fault. No, he's, he's going to say, listen, you had Paul with you for three years teaching you of how to prioritize your life and how to depend on God's Holy Spirit and how to see your life as not your own, but as God's, as Paul saw his own life. And so Paul's saying, not in a mean way, but you see this in the Old Testament with Samuel and other prophets. They say, I've, I've spoken the word of the Lord to you and there is no guilt. I, I have nothing on my conscience. And that's what he's saying. He declared the whole purpose of God, he said, to the Ephesians. And Paul was also bold in speaking to non-Christians. In fact, he was ready and willing to give his life so that some people, even the very people that were willing to take his life, could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to saving faith in him and find forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. He's willing to die for people who want to kill him just to get the gospel to them, willing to sacrifice his life for that ministry to make known Jesus all throughout the Roman world. And I love how he describes this in verse 24. He says, this is like a life verse, okay? He says in verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. 
Is he saying he he's, uh, thinks he's worthless or something like that? No. What he's saying is, this life on this earth, I'm not clutching onto it. I'm not clinging onto it. God's not going to have to pry my you know, cold, dead fingers off of this life and the stuff in it. He's saying this life is, is a sacrifice unto God, and it's a sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's that Romans 12.1, living sacrifice mentality. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So why? What's the purpose of, of that? So that I may finish my course. That was a runner's race. I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Remember when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus earlier in Acts? To testify. What is this ministry received from Jesus? To testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. I love how, they, how uh, Luke words that to testify solemnly of the good news of God's grace. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of God's grace. That we're saved not because of anything we do for God or don't do. It's because of what he did for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's grace by which we are saved. In verse 21, Paul referred to his gospel ministry again as solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, he was, he was an inclusive guy. He was all about inclusivity. He's like, I'm going to share the gospel with everybody because everybody's a sinner in need of a savior. So he doesn't say, I'm just going to go focus on these folks over here. He's like, everybody needs Jesus. I'm going to share him with everybody. So Jew and Greek. And, and what is he testifying of? He says this, and this is a beautiful articulation of the gospel in very simple, simple terms. He says he's testifying of repentance toward God Folks, repentance in this context is a turning toward God. So repentance toward God, turning away from your unbelief toward God. And then what's the other side of that coin? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're turning toward God in repentance of your unbelief toward God. And you're you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it's beautiful. So Paul was an effective church leader in part because he was bold in proclaiming the gospel and teaching and preaching God's word. An effective church leader is also vigilant. Guys, this is, the, this is like the marrow in the bone, all right? This is like the, 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 the choice cut of this passage. So I want to spend just a little time. I'm going to read it to you. But an effective church leader is vigilant. You know what vigilant means, having a vigil? It means that you're, you're keeping watch. You're staying alert, Right? You're paying attention. You're being careful. So this is my favorite part of the verse. And Paul, at this point in in, uh, verses 28 to 30, this is where Paul starts exhorting, starts um, uh, encouraging directly these elders that came to meet him on the coast. Uh, This is 28 through 30. And I'm going to read it. It says, he says this to the church leaders. Be on guard first for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, That term has a sense of guardianship and protecting as you oversee something, someone. And then he he goes on to explain it to shepherd. That's that's the verb form of where we get the, the noun for pastor to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, 
Men will arise speaking perverse things, that's crooked things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So if you, if you include that last part, or the first part of verse 31, this is a, he bookends this, this section by saying, be on guard in 28, therefore be on the alert in 31. And so this, this uh, section is framed with vigilance. It's pulsating through this passage. And the whole section is using this metaphor of shepherding. And guys, shepherding is one of the richest metaphors in both the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and in the New Testament. It's almost like God created shepherds and sheep just so he could use that as a metaphor for his people and the leaders of his people that he appoints. It's beautiful. But he uses this shepherding metaphor. And here we see two sides of vigilant shepherding. So first of all, church leaders must be vigilant for a certain group of people. Did you catch that? If you're a church leader, you need to be vigilant first for yourself. Because how many times have we seen some church leader hiding sin, growing in pride, unaccountable to others, doesn't have a plurality of elders to, to, keep, to keep him in check, and he starts getting the big head, or he starts getting into sin and not confessing it, and it blows up. And how many people does that hurt? The entire church. More than that. It ripples all throughout our communities. And that's why I think he says, first and foremost, you stay vigilant, first and foremost, for yourself, so that you don't get off in the weeds and get attacked and bring down a whole church with you. And then he says, for all the flock. So these are the ones to be vigilant for. In verse 28, Paul begins with ourselves as church leaders, because again, what's the quickest way to take down the rest of the flock? Take down the leaders, cause a scandal, something, right? And so be vigilant for yourselves and for the rest of the flock. In verse 28, Paul also makes two important points. Please pay attention. This is like the, this is the good stuff. For, and for church leaders and for everybody. But we need to understand this. this. We talk about this in our commitment classes. We talked about this last fall in our church series we did. But listen to what he says here about the church. He says, number one, that the Holy Spirit appoints. The Holy Spirit chooses, selects, appoints qualified shepherds to oversee the flock. Guys, if somebody is serving in church leadership, it's because God put them there and allowed them to remain there. Does that mean they can't get sideways and, and become disqualified? Of course they can. That's why he's warning them and encouraging them. But the idea is, is that myself and our elder board, we have got to see ourselves, not so that we can lord it over all of you and go, this is what, you know, I'm the king of this country. I'm the king of this castle. I'm, I'm going to tell you what to do. No, it's so that you guys can see the Holy Spirit working in and through us, but so we can recognize that we're here appointed by the Holy Spirit for this task of oversight, of overseeing, of shepherding. That's huge because at times you doubt these things and you got to know that God put you there. God put your fellow elder there for a reason. He's appointed us to oversee the flock. But listen, in case, lest we come to think that this is our flock, what does he say next? He speaks to ownership of the flock belonging to God. Guys, this church is not my church. This church is not Kevin's church or anybody's church. And that goes for female leaders too. I don't care how big your, your, uh, 
donations are to the church. I don't care how much we serve, how much time in the week we give. We do not own this church, right? We cannot build our church around people. And that's why he makes this so explicit. He says that God is the owner of this flock because it's God who paid the price of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to purchase us, to redeem us out of sin and death and the clutches of Satan, out of the kingdom of the prince of darkness, as as the Bible talks about it, and brought us in the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. But the purchase was made by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he talks about us being, not us, but the the whole church, even over the last 20 centuries, but all around the world today, and certainly those of us that are here at Wayside Communities Church have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And so I can't look at, at this church and say, oh, this is my flock, right? It's not. I am an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd, as Peter calls him. And I think that's a great way to think about it. It's the only way to think about it. Second, church leaders have to be vigilant, 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 have to be vigilant to protect God's flock against two species of attackers. On the first hand, there's fierce predators and then false prophets and teachers. So in verse 29, Paul predicts that savage wolves will ravage the Ephesian flock after his departure. And then in verse 30, Paul specifies that men would arise from the congregation itself to mislead other members of the church. And so Paul charged the elders to be effective shepherds by remaining vigilant, both for the flock and against these would-be attackers, even the ones that arise from within the church. An effective church leader is also faithful. Look at verses 31 and 32. After giving his charge to the elders in in, uh, verses 28 to 30, what we just read, Paul again reminds them to follow his example. You see this all throughout this passage at the beginning and at the end. Paul's saying, look at my example, not in a prideful way, but he's saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, which he wrote to the uh, the Corinthians. But but he's saying, look again to my example. What is his example here? In verse 31, he he reminds them of his diligence, his hard work with God's people in Ephesus, as he faithfully admonished each one of them day and night for three years, even with tears, even in the midst of trials and tribulations and persecutions and tragedies, day in and day out, not with just a certain group, but he says with each one, I spent this time admonishing. I love that. And then in verse 32, we see how Paul was full of faith. So he's faithful in his diligence, but he's also full of faith in his dependence upon God because he entrusted ultimately the Ephesian church to God. Because why? Because he was convinced of the fact that in his absence, he knew he was going to leave and maybe never come back, but he knew that in his absence, the word of God's grace, the gospel, the power of the gospel would continue to grow and strengthen the men and women in that church. He was absolutely convinced of that. And so he was full of faith, even as he departed, knowing that God was going to still be there. An effective church leader is selfless. Look at verses 33 to 35. In verse 33, Paul states that he never coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothes. And basically what he means is that he wasn't in ministry to make money and gain status. Right? I am disgusted by people that get into Christian full-time vocational ministry to make lots of money, to drive flashy cars, to to show it off, and, you know, whatever, whether it's prosperity gospel theology or whatever it is, 
Uh, or maybe it's not the riches. Maybe they'll you know, drive a beat-up old car just to prove how humble they are. But, but in their mind's eye, they're gaining status. They're gaining influence, power, pride, something like this. Guys, both ways it's a bad deal. Both ways it's wrong. And that's why Paul says, I didn't covet anyone's silver or gold or clothes. I'm not in this for status and wealth. Instead, what does he do? Instead, he says, I worked hard. He was a tent maker. He was a leather worker. He says, I worked hard to meet my own needs. I mean, he's like Paul. And he's going into these towns so that it doesn't become an offense to the people he's sharing the gospel with. He doesn't want to make it seem like he's there sharing the gospel so he can make money. You know, like the teachers of his day did. The itinerant teachers would go around and say, yeah, I'll teach you something. I'll teach you some philosophy. Just give me some money and a place to stay. So Paul met his own needs so that that didn't become a stumbling block to somebody trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he worked hard to also meet the needs of his traveling companions that might not have had a a skill, a trade available to, to make money while they were on their missionary journeys. And so he wants to cover his own needs and the needs of others like his traveling companions. But he wanted the church leaders in Ephesus to also model this principle, which he takes all the way back to the lips of Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus taught that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And they have to first and foremost model that as leaders in the church. An effective church leader is never greedy and always generous to others. An effective church leader is also prayerful. And guys, Paul models this in verse 33. It says, when he had said these things, when he had spoken his peace, what's he do? Does he just hurry off to the ship and jump aboard? No. He gets down in a circle with these men in the dirt and puts his arms around them and he prays for them and he prays with them. It said, after he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. You see, Paul knew that God was in control. And if you're a church leader, if you're anybody, okay, let's just broaden it. We'll universalize this. And you don't believe that God is in control you are going to be fraught with anxiety. You will not have peace in this life. That's our only way to have peace, is to recognize that God is in control, even when everything seems out of control to us. And that God would continue working in Ephesus long after Paul's ship had sailed. And I'm sure that's probably what he prayed. He probably just said, God, I'm leaving. You're staying here. Just you know, bless these people, protect them, provide for them, etc. So to be effective, a church leader has to recognize that the spiritual growth and protection of God's people is ultimately in God's hands. Now, he uses us as shepherds and pastors and teachers and all sorts of things, all sorts of ways to serve others with our hands, our feet, not just our mouth. But it's ultimately God. It's in his hands. And then finally, an effective church leader is personal. And maybe this is the cherry on top. In other words, A church leader is to invest in personal relationships and build up relational equity with others. I don't buy, oh yes, I'm a pastor. That word means shepherd, by the way. But I don't get around sheep. I don't like the way they act. I don't like the way they smell. I don't like the, right? I don't buy that for a second, right? Maybe they've been bitten by a sheep once in a while. You know, a member of the church has has bitten them. I don't know what that looks like. And maybe they're like, I don't want to be around sheep anymore. I need some other people to go. Well, I don't know that you're a shepherd much anymore if you remove yourself from the sheep. You know what I mean? And so I think you have to, in some sense, be engaged in the lives of your sheep. 
i.e. you need to be engaged in personal relationships with the men and women and children in your flock, in your church. And I think Paul knew that. And look at the effect of this kind of personal ministry. Paul didn't come in and go, all right, take a number. All right, I'm seeing number 49. Okay, uh, here's the theological wisdom for you. No, he's like crying with these people. He's like, he's like just getting down in prayer as they're being persecuted, as they're being facing trials, like they, they're doing life together. And so what's the effect when Paul leaves? Let's just read it. It's our last verses, starting in 37. It says, And all these elders began to weep aloud, and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. He had predicted that he was going to face, that the Holy Spirit was telling him, you're going to face imprisonment and afflictions. And that's why I said, I'm not going to see you guys again. Right? And so they're weeping aloud, especially at that fact. And it says they were accompanying him to the ship. So as we step back and we look out at today's passage, we learn that an effective church leader is all these things and more. Now, we are not these things perfectly. If if I had a measuring stick on all eight of these things, some weeks I do better at some, some weeks I do better at others. The point is, if I am wholly and completely given over, if I die to myself, if I stop walking by the flesh to walk by the Spirit, if I give total uh, 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 submission to God's Spirit, then I will be this kind of leader. We will all show these kind of fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. But it's purposefulness, humility, boldness, vigilance, faithfulness, selflessness, prayerfulness, and personal relationships to invest in. And I'm not sure how many Ephesian elders were there that day. I have no clue. I don't even want to speculate. But here at Wayside, we have five elders, folks. I don't know how big that church was at this point. I don't know how many elders they needed. But we have five elders here for the 75-ish adults and 85-ish kids that we call our church family here at Wayside. And all five of us, and I will say this on behalf of them, all five of us strive to live out each and every quality of effective church leadership that we discussed today. There is not one thing on that list that I just read off to you today from today's passage that we're not striving to meet up to and to live out. And I am so grateful to God to have such an incredible group of elders, these other four men that I get to do ministry with in leading this church and shepherding this flock, to partner with them in shepherding and teaching and caring for the men and women of children of Wayside Communities Church. And, and I want you to know this because today is a commitment renewal ceremony. Today is a day to celebrate six years of ministry as a church. I want you to hear this directly from my heart and from my lips is that folks, we take this role as pastors, shepherds, elders incredibly seriously. We lose sleep over you. We love you. I can't even express how many prayers we've prayed for you. We would do anything for this church family. We would be the first ones to take the bullet for y'all. We take this role seriously. And as our passage points out so clearly, we believe at the end of the day that the Holy Spirit has us where we are in leadership at least for now, until he's good and ready to to send us to be with Jesus, or Jesus wants to come back tomorrow, come Lord Jesus. 
or he wants to send us off to some something else. That's his prerogative. He can do that. But at least for now, we feel like he has placed us here in leadership at Wayside. And we gladly accept the burden of shepherding each and every member of Wayside because there is a pastoral burden. I mean, Paul talks about it. It's not a bad burden. It's a good burden. He, Paul says, how, which one of you falls into sin that we don't, we, our hearts aren't affected along with you, that we're not saddened and grieved about it? Which one of you experiences tragedy or, or, or hardship or heartache and we're not brokenhearted with you? And so we readily accept that burden of shepherding each and every member of Wayside, knowing that you have each been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, hear me. Be, because it, it means that you are infinitely valuable and you are precious to God. And there is not a thing that can change that. I would read you Romans 8 right now, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. There is nothing that's going to change. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that's going to change your infinite value and preciousness in the eyes of God. And when you wake up one morning and think you're a dirtbag or that you're not reading your Bible enough or whatever else it is that Satan is tempting you to believe about yourself, part of our job is to remind you and to remind each other that you have been bought and paid for by none other than the blood of the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ. And that is a gospel of God's grace. And this is why we take that role so seriously. Because, folks, you're precious to us, too. And we want to be as effective as we possibly can at serving you. So, this leads me to my one and only application today, okay? And it fits right into what we're about to do. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate what we've been calling a commitment renewal ceremony. We've only done one other one of these back in January. But we felt it was appropriate to do them in September during this month of, of looking behind to, to God's grace over the past year and looking forward to this new year of ministry. And so if you've, if you've never signed a commitment form, now hear me, do I love you and think you're precious and valuable before you sign a piece of paper that says you're committed to our church? Yes, okay? And there may be good reasons why you're struggling with whether to do that or not, okay? And we, we need to talk about that. That's part of, of us pastoring you well, Okay. But I do want you to be a committed member of some local church. And if that's Wayside, then if you've never filled out one of these commitment forms, please do. That's, that's what membership is. You, if you trusted in Jesus, you just tell us that you support our church. You sign off on that. And, and we just added this a couple years ago. But now there's a section at the bottom where an elder, one of our five elders, signs it and makes a commitment to you on behalf of the church. Because for so long, we had a one-way thing where you fill out a paper to say you're committed and then we file it in this like manila folder that says like current memberships and then if you ever move or go to a different church or something we just put it into past memberships folder you know like that's not okay like (laughs) it doesn't need to be an administrative process that's why we do this commitment renewal ceremony it's not that we wipe our membership clean every year and make you jump through a bunch of hoops to become a member again it's just that we want to remind you of those vows you made, that commitment you made maybe six years ago. And you know what I did? I actually printed out everybody's commitment forms that I had. Uh, Some of the ones that y'all did over the last year, they're buried in some file cabinet in the depths of a storage unit off 51st Street because we had a house fire. But all the ones I could find on my computer, I printed out and I put them over here. And I want you to go look at it. Go find yours if, if I've got it over there. And if you don't know if you filled one out in the past, 
you know what, we had COVID and we didn't do commitment classes for like two years. It's okay, just do it now. Doesn't mean you're, you haven't been valuable and precious to this church if you haven't signed that piece of paper and turned it in. Just do it today. That's membership. And then we do the stone stacking ceremony just as a way to encourage one another. So it's not an administrative bureaucratic process where we just move your piece of paper into a manila folder. It's something that we can all do together as a corporate unity of diverse individuals coming together in the local church body for the glory of God and for the good of one another and for the encouragement of one another to say, listen, over this next year, come what may, we are in this with you. We're in this with you in your relationships, whether it's a marriage or a hardship with a boss or parenting or whatever it is, ministry, sharing the gospel, praying for people coming to the Lord, we're in this with you. And that's what we're expressing through this commitment renewal ceremony, okay? All right. Um, I get on a soapbox. All right. So I want to tell you this, and I've got a picture. Can you bring up the picture? We did this back in January, and that jar with those name stones sits on my desk, and I look at it constantly. I did not stick it on some dusty shelf somewhere. I look at it every single day. And do you know what it does for me? It encourages me because it tells me that we are committed to one another. We are members of one another in this body of believers called Wayside. And I think that's fantastic. Um, So today's passage was a farewell address by Paul who never thought he'd see these Ephesian elders again. And I would like to close with a similar farewell that Paul includes in his last written inspired letter It's the closing of 2 Timothy, his second letter to his most important spiritual protege, Timothy. And folks, this is what he writes, and this is what I want to close with. He says this to his protege. He says, as he's awaiting execution, by the way, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. You see how he sees his life? And the time of my departure has come. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. On that day when he stands glorified, resurrected alongside his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And folks, I, for one, am looking forward to being with Jesus on that day. There's not a week goes by I don't think about that. Not a day goes by, Miss Laverne. I'm looking forward to being with Jesus on that day, and I'm looking forward to hearing those words, not just for myself, but I'm looking forward to hearing those words that Jesus spoke for all of you as well when he said, Well done, good and faithful servants. And we're going to be there together on that day, and I look forward to it.